Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, The Unseen Hand of God. So would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Severe Mercy. Have you heard the phrase, a severe mercy? Well, what does that mean? Well, let's start with mercy. I mean, mercy is related to compassion. I mean, to show mercy means to show leniency where none was required or or where none was earned. To show mercy is to show kindness to someone who doesn't have it coming. And so mercy is not something that can be expected, but when it's given, it's experienced as unexpected kindness. Well, then, what can a severe mercy be? I mean, either it's kind or it's severe. Surely it can't be both, or can it? You know, the phrase severe mercy comes from the title of a book by that very name. It was written by Sheldon Vonnegut. You know, it takes too long to explain the book here today, only to say that the book describes an extraordinary deep love and intimacy that Vonnegut shared with the woman who became his wife. Her name was Jean Davis, or Davy, as he called her. Initially, they were both pagans, and eventually they came to Christ. But Davy progressed in her faith, and Sheldon was becoming jealous of the place that Jesus had taken in her life, and that it was Jesus that had replaced Sheldon. He was now the central love of Davy. And then Davy died, and Sheldon was introduced to the Valley of Sorrow and Suffering. A severe mercy is his story of discovery, of understanding, and the maturing of his faith. In the end, all Sheldon experienced from God's hand was grace, mercy. But oh, how severe had been that mercy. You know, since that book, the idea of experiencing severe mercy has made sense to a great many people. You might be one of those people. You may have gone through the valley of suffering only to find the grace of God, but the wounds of that valley continue to remain. There will always be sorrow, but the sorrow and the pain, well, it was from the hand of a God who longed to show you his mercy. Genesis 42 all the way to chapter 46 is the story of an agonizing mercy. The characters of the story are all wounded already, and what transpires is incredibly difficult for all who experience it. This is not a story that ends with, and they all lived happily ever after. But this is a story of mercy and grace. Indeed, it is a story of how God rescued his chosen people. And just in case you find this story hard to bear, the fact that it is hard to bear means that you're listening closely. But if you choose not to enter into the story deeply, you are going to miss a most amazing story of grace, of mercy, and of the overwhelming and unstoppable love of God. You know, up to now in a series I've called The Unseen Hand of God, we've watched the story of a family tragedy. It's been the story of hatred and envy and selling a brother into slavery and the gradual abandoning of faith and the assimilation into the culture of Canaanite paganism. Yeah, this had been the family of Abraham, family that God had promised to make his own people, to redeem from the families of the earth this his chosen possession. But this family is about to encounter an amazing mercy. God is going to come to their rescue. He's going to deliver them and save them from their sins and forge them into the most unique nation in the history of the earth. They will become the chosen people of God through whom the Savior of this world will come. You know, we last left off with Joseph having become the prime minister of Egypt, and we've seen him hard at work in guiding his nation through its greatest crisis. In the meantime, God was healing his own personal wounds. We now come to chapter 42, verses 1 to 5. A severe mercy is about to begin again. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, 
Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. You know, Joseph has been storing up mountains of grain in Egypt, and so when the famine began, all the surrounding nations went to Egypt as the only place to buy food and to survive. And now we have his family, his father instructing his sons, go to Egypt and buy food. We notice that 10 of the brothers go. Judah has come back to his family. He's humbled, and and he understands his own sin. But we also notice that Jacob sends only 10. The youngest, Benjamin, doesn't go. Years earlier, we noticed that Joseph was then dad's favorite, and he stayed at home while the other ten went out and did field work. Looks like nothing much has changed. The ten do the hard work, and dad's new favorite, Benjamin, is at home. Dad is afraid something bad might happen. He he doesn't seem quite as concerned that something bad might happen to the other ten. What's also interesting here is that well over 20 years have passed since we've last heard about this family. Dad is still ordering the ten around, and by all accounts, they still grudgingly do what Dad wants. And so at first glance, there's no change in the family. They're still as dysfunctional as they always have been. But again, if that's all we see, that nothing has changed, well, we've failed to see the unseen hand of God. We're reading now verses 6 to 11. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. You know, in the course of this study, I've called Joseph the prime minister of Egypt, answerable only to the king. Of course, you know, when I say that, I'm not implying that the ancient Egyptians actually, you know, had a political office with the title prime minister. Our text here uses the word governor, or we could also translate the word vizier. We've already learned that that he's the second most powerful person in Egypt and that, for the most part, Pharaoh allows Joseph to function on his own authority. What he speaks is law. And so however we describe the first encounter that the ten have with Joseph, well, we must see him as much more than a powerful figure in Egypt. Joseph is the power of Egypt. And when he passes by in his chariot, all are required to bow. When he speaks, all are required to zip it. For to speak when he does is to forfeit your life. You know, it's this power. It's the power of his presence that should dominate our thinking in this passage. Now, before we move on, we might ask, why is it that Joseph recognizes his brothers, but his brothers don't recognize him? I think here there are several factors to explain it. You know, for one, Joseph is a good bit younger than they are. He was 17 when they last saw him, and no doubt his appearance had changed. But of course, Joseph has no beard now. Joseph is dressed in imperial splendor now. Joseph comes with pomp and circumstance of one who is one of the most powerful and feared persons on earth. 
They're hardly staring into his face. They're terrified to do that. They keep their heads down and their knees are hard on the earth. And lastly, and this is important, he's speaking to them in the language of Egypt. He's speaking through an interpreter. And as Joseph observes them, no doubt his thoughts are suddenly overwhelmed with his dream in which God had shown him so many years ago that one day his brothers would bow before him. And now after all the cruelty he had experienced from their hands, the hour has come. At this juncture, that is, if we're reading this story for the very first time, well, we might not be sure what Joseph is up to. You know, it can look to us as if, you know, it's finally time to repay his brothers. And if we're reading this account for the first time, it surely appears that that's exactly what he's doing. He's finally giving them what they deserve. He seems to be using the force of law, the power of his office, to utterly destroy these 10 brothers. You know, and some of us might say, well, now, they deserve it. They're finally getting what is their due. But of course, mercy, well, mercy is receiving what we don't deserve. So let's observe Joseph's first reaction. He accuses his brothers of being spies. Well, spies were often a part of what foreign nations would do. Well, they not only do it now, but they did it back then. And back then when they did it, it was almost always in preparation for an invasion. You might think of Joshua sending spies into the promised land. They're checking out where the weaknesses lie. And the idea of spies entering Egypt during this time of crisis around the world, well, I would suspect that Egypt was crawling with spies. You know, if Egypt alone has food, and if Egypt can set the price of food for everyone, and if all of the other nations around are completely dependent on Egypt, well, I would think that wouldn't sit well with all of those other nations at all. No doubt, foreign nations were, at the very least, probing for Egyptian weaknesses, looking for some way in which they could redress the balance of power. You know, and furthermore, once discovered, well, spies would be very quickly killed. I mean, the charge of being a foreign spy, that was terrifying. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again or In Doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. In order to appeal to the Egyptian ruler, they're innocent. Well, the brothers are very quick to point out that they don't represent a government. They represent a single family. They are all brothers. They're all the sons of one man. Well, of course, Joseph is not so quickly dissuaded from his line of questioning. He is probing. He counts 10. He knows one's missing. It's his only full brother, Benjamin. So where's he? 
You know, is he kept at home just like, you know, he had once been? Is Benjamin now in the position of honor? Do his half-brothers resent Benjamin in the same way that they had once resented him? He must know, so he carries on. He presses them. He, he probes as to what has occurred since he was gone. Verses 12 and 13, he said to them, Know it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now, you're going to recall that just before Joseph accused them of spying out the nakedness of the land, they had claimed that they were honest men. Well, on that account, Joseph was fairly sure that they were lying. Honest men, he doubted that. And so the brothers now redouble their efforts to convince the ruler of the land. They know they're suddenly in very deep trouble. I mean, perhaps adding more details about their family situation will help. One brother is at home, they say, and one is no more. I mean, they're being as truthful as they know how to be, but they, you know, they hide some of the details. And as far as they know, Joseph may well be dead by now. In response, Joseph simply ignores their claims of ignorance, and he presses them even harder. He accuses them again of being spies. Verses 14 to 17. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Well, you might notice how this would have seemed to the brothers. The ruler of Egypt has just heard them claim they are brothers, and they describe their family situation, but he isn't so easily persuaded. He's a shrewd ruler. He's heard every form of flattery and lie in his life, and he's rarely so easily convinced. And so, in effect, this ruler challenges their truth claims. Prove it, he says. I'm going to put every single one of you in prison, save one of you, who's going to go home, and you're going to get your brother and present him. If you can't produce someone who looks remarkably like your brother, I just caught you in a lie. And then without further discussion, the ruler of the land simply nods to the guards and they immediately arrest all 10 men. The ruler's gone now. And for three days, the 10 are in prison and they don't know whether or not they're going to live or die. Can I stop here and ask the question that we might all be asking? You know, some of us who were raised on the ethic that we should forgive our enemies, well, we, we might think, that Joseph should not have chosen to go this route. And why not simply tell them, I'm Joseph, and then tell them that God has blessed him and tell them that he has forgiven them. In the future, could not there have been a relationship and couldn't God have overseen their change and, and couldn't it actually have been that he simply moves in to reclaim what was lost? But instead of choosing that pathway, Joseph terrifies them, and then as we continue to read the account, Joseph will test them and bring them to the point of breaking them. You know, some of us, whether or not maybe we've thought about it or not, we've not got the right idea about what forgiveness entails. Let me suggest some examples of this kind of thinking. A man commits adultery, perhaps once, perhaps it's been a habit. Eventually, his wife finds out. Uh, she's been told that she needs to forgive, and so... She does tell him how hurt and shocked and disappointed she is, and then she also says, I forgive you, and then she immediately takes him back. Hmm. Let me suggest another example. A well-known pastor is found to have had relations with a number of women in his church, and consequently, the church removes him from office. A year later, he's starting a new church, 
and even tells his new congregation that this church is for people who have failed and sinned and are less than perfect. And he says, I identify with you because I'm less than perfect as well. But Jesus, he says, died on a cross for sinners and people who have disappointed and failed others, well, that's what the gospel is all about and I know how you feel. Well, in both of these examples, we display a horrible propensity to believe only half the truth. Forgiveness? Yeah, it's true. Forgiveness is mandated for all of God's people. Regardless of what others have done to us, Christians are called upon to forgive. But here we're required to ask a deeper question. When Jesus told us to forgive our enemies, what did he ask us to do? Consider, first of all, that Jesus told us to forgive our enemies. Yeah, they are enemies. Yeah, they seek our undoing. And even if not that, they are often enemies of the cross, or they are men and women who only indulge in their own desires and never think of anyone but themselves. So what should forgiveness entail? You know, I think from our passage, it surely entails that we'll not seek to harm our enemies, even when it's in our power to do so. Forgiveness seeks to be merciful, not vengeful. Forgiveness seeks the good of the offender, not their undoing. I go even further. Forgiveness seeks reconciliation when it's possible. So on the basis of that, let me now ask a question. If a pastor is reinstated after adultery, is it really merciful to put him back into an office in which he has proven himself to be vulnerable and prone to sin? And since we're talking about mercy, what does reinstating him say to Well, the young men and women of the church. Shall we not consider what mercy looks like for them? You know, if the pastor says that Jesus came to save the broken, well, he's right about that. But he has failed to say that Jesus has come to restore the broken, to change the heart of the broken, to make that which was unholy into that which is holy. Or if a woman takes her cheating husband back and the root of sin still lives in his heart, the propensity towards sexual wickedness is not addressed, well, what then? How is taking him back merciful at all? Isn't it simply enabling him, and isn't it simply stating that that adultery is not that big of a deal at all? See, when forgiveness is meant to imply that we should state that the sin doesn't matter, well, it might be forgiveness to be sure, but it surely isn't mercy because it's content to leave the sinner to carry on being the sinner. It abandons the ideal of reconciliation for an easy declaration that sin and its consequences don't actually matter. I put this to you for your consideration. Joseph has indeed forgiven his brothers. If he hadn't, he would have put them to death immediately and simply walked away from that mess. Instead, he puts them in prison for three days and he waits and he hopes and he deliberates. He longs for them to encounter mercy, to come to terms with their sin and the assurance that there can be ground for reconciliation. See, unlike forgiveness, reconciliation is much more difficult. It looks for fruit. It looks for ground upon which one can build to repair that which was broken. It looks for grace of repentance. It looks for the coming to terms with the consequences of evil. Now, I know it's sometimes been asked, how can God demand that we should forgive our enemies when God doesn't forgive his? Well, listen, the Bible is remarkably clear about this matter. Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I mean, that word adversaries refers to God's adversaries or the enemies of God. 
God burns his enemies to the ground and consigns them to the place of eternal torment. That's what the passage says. Well, why can't we do that then if God does it? Well, for one, you're not God. God's righteousness is perfect. Yours, (laughs) you're not even close. And second, you yourself have been an enemy of God. And has God not shown you mercy? And has not God reconciled you to himself? Beware then, lest you think that you can treat your enemies as God treats his. You're not God. You will then find, if you pretend that you are, you will find that your own sin is exposed. God has no sin. You, on the other hand, you've got lots and so have I. Instead, in Joseph, we find a model for believing Christians everywhere. Joseph will treat his brothers with mercy and not with wrath. He will look for signs of genuine repentance, for when he finds them, he believes that there will be room for there to be reconciliation. And so, while Joseph forgives, he withholds reconciliation, not because he wants to hold it over their heads. Because Joseph, as we're going to see, with all his heart, yearns and longs for his brothers. This indeed, before it's all done, this longing for his brother will result in a severe mercy. What we will find now is a great tragedy and yet at the same time, a wonderful moment of the triumph of God's grace and a showcase of what it's like to find the mercy of God. John, would it be true to say as we think of this story in our own lives and that kind of thing that Forgiveness and reconciliation don't always go hand in hand. You know, Ben, it seems to me that in the regular course of human events, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, reconciliation is a rare thing. It, it does happen, and it's a marvelous uh, picture of what has happened to us through the blood of Christ, that we've been reconciled to God, the most unlikely reconciliation story that, that can be told. Um, it is true that in great many cases, Um, someone who victimizes someone else almost, well, they often don't take ownership of it. And sometimes a victim may hunger for that, just wanting that to happen, and it never comes. You know, in those moments, we're going to have to just entrust our lives into the hands of God and recognize that his grace will be enough and that even in this, God will have something to teach us. Uh, At the same time, uh, we should always, if we are truly forgiving of our enemies, hold open the hope that genuine reconciliation might yet occur. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue in our study, The Unseen Hand of God, right here at Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you registered for the Back of the Bible Canada's Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise in February 2020? Sail for nine days around the Caribbean, enjoying all that the incredible Royal Caribbean ship has to offer in all the ports of call. Do all this while being inspired and refreshed by the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh and be encouraged from Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and enjoy wonderful music and worship with guests Shane and Angela Weeb. So join us to celebrate this great occasion. Bring friends, bring family, and make sure to register soon to avoid your disappointment. For more information or to register, call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebibletours.ca. And remember, 
that all of our ministry vacation events or tours are funded exclusively by the participants and no ministry resources are used for this purpose.